just uh, was going to share with you some thoughts this morning, if that's okay. Um, first of all, if you've noticed it's warm, I know we had an air conditioner issue this morning, and I apologize about that. It is working as hard as it can, and um, just can't work any harder. <laughs> but uh, we have uh, a couple of things. You know, our kids are involved in all different things. I was laughing, speaking of moms, the, the way that... Uh, we grew up, my mom, we didn't have very much money, so she would always make sure that we had what we needed, and um, every once in a while we would get what we wanted, and that was uh, always a challenge. I can remember, you remember when Whoppers were 99 cents? Anybody remember that? 99 cent Whoppers, please bring that back. Whoppers were one of my very favorite things. We'd dig in the couch cushions trying to get 99 cents. Uh, so we could go to, the, to get some uh, Whoppers from the store. Um, my uh, wife and I, so she, I think she kind of has taken my mom's place in that regard. We were at the baseball game the other day for Caden. And uh, we're sitting around and, you know, you go to the baseball game and for some reason anymore, the bleachers are not good enough for anybody. So you have to have either a special bleacher seat or your own little collapsible chair. Anybody notice that? Everybody takes your own chair to the, we're no different. Um, but I will tell you that we never take a chair that's worth more than $5. Like, like it's, the, it's the $5. If Academy is selling it, some of these people have, they have the rocking chairs and they have the lounge chairs and they have like all these chairs. I'm like, yeah, honey, let's get one of these chairs. No, if that chair at Academy is more than $5, we are not getting it. Uh, so we got the $5 special, which is fine. It's fine. I'm fine. We're going to be good with that. Um, and, uh, and our kids, Caden, the other day, we were talking and he's looking at his glove. I didn't know what he was doing. First of all, I'm driving. Sarisa, we're, I think we were on our way to his game. We're driving to his game and he says, uh, looks at, at something. He says, hey, dad, what is, uh, what is Louisville? And I said, that's the town we're going to to play your game. It's in Louisville. He goes, well, what's a Louisville slugger? I said, oh, oh, well, that's. You mean Louisville Slugger. Louisville Slugger and Louisville, two different things, Caden. He's nine, so. Uh, Louisville Slugger is a bat company. Uh, no, Dad, it's Louisville. No, Caden, it's, it's Louisville, and we're going to Louisville. They're spelled entirely different. He says, well, I'm telling you, I'm looking at the, the spelling right here, and it's Louisville. And I was like, are you kidding? So he's arguing with me about how to say. I said, okay, listen, son, you take my 40-plus years of experience, and you put it against your five years, and, and we'll see, you know, um, who comes out on top here. Say, if you want to say Louisville or Louisville, you go right ahead. Um, but when people laugh at you, don't you come... <laughs> But we, we were talking about that. And finally, I got him to understand. It's a Louisville Slugger. And then he says, well, why do they make, they make bats, yeah? Well, why is my glove a Louisville Slugger glove? Well, apparently they make other equipment also, you know? I don't know. Uh, the, <laughs> the, our kids, man, they always have, uh, have something to say. But that's just the way it is. And uh, moms deal with all of it, right? They take care of everything. I, I can remember as, as a dad, uh, first-time dad, when, who is now my 14-year-old daughter was born, I knew nothing about, um, about moms and, uh, other than my mom, and I loved her, and Sarisa taught me so much. Um, I will say that um, it's just... Uh, it's just a, a love for, for moms. So anyway, moms, uh, we love you today. We're grateful for uh, who you are. I, I, I noticed this morning that I got an email, no, no joke this morning, um, and it said, today they're giving $150 off a Dyson vacuum cleaner. Did you know that? 
I was like, hey, babe, I got your, your Mother's Day gift right here. I know exactly what it's going to be. Super cheap uh, Dyson vacuum. You've been wanting a Dyson. <clears throat> she threatened me with that. She said, don't you dare get me a Dyson vacuum for Mother's Day. Uh, I will, that's a joke for us because I learned the hard way. Nobody taught me this. There was no manual that said, hey, this is how you're supposed to be married. Uh, our first year of marriage, I don't think it was for Mother's Day. It might have been our anniversary, but uh, you guys remember Circuit City? Anybody remember Circuit City? All right, Circuit, Circuit City. I promise I get, there's a message coming. I'm just telling some stories for myself. So we went to Circuit City this one day, and um, they had the uh, steam cleaners on sale. <laughs> you know, the carpet cleaners, and I was like, Oh, that's so cool. You can have your very own carpet cleaner in your house. First year we were married, I was very excited. Bought her one uh, for our anniversary, and uh, that was, I found out then, never buy ever something for your uh, significant other or mom-to-be something that is a, a tool to be used. It's just not the thing. So uh, don't do that, by the way. Or go ahead and buy the vacuum if you want, but don't say it's a Mother's Day gift because you will be in trouble. So... Anyway, uh, it's good to see all of you guys today, and I forgot to say, um, if you're a guest, don't forget on your way out to stop and see somebody at the um, coffee booth or coffee bar on the way out and, and, and get your free gift today. So a few weeks ago, we started talking about being unoffendable. Does anybody remember that? Have you found a chance to not be offended? Have you been looking for the opportunity? God, help me find the, the time and the place to not be offended. All right, I'll give a quick recap if you are just now uh, catching up to us. There's a few things we looked at when we asked the question, why are we so offendable? Why is being offended such a large part of our lives? I mean, really think about it. When we, even when we're talking to friends, we're talking about all of the things that happened when we got offended. I was mad about this, and this person did this, and can you believe the, the teller treated me that way, or can you believe the waiter spit on my soup, or can you believe the, that might be something worth getting upset about, but I'm saying, like, we, we, we have these ideas about being offended, and we talk to everybody about it. Maybe we like our anger. At least that was a question we asked. Sounds a little bit silly, but for some reason, we're always finding ways to hold on to that anger. We make whatever is happening in our life, we make that narrative fit around what we want it to be. We make ourselves right. We make ourselves the one who always comes out on top. We also talked about the idea, and I, several of you have mentioned this to me, so I know it stuck, stuck with you. Um, everybody's an idiot but me. Like, some of you were offended that I said everybody's an idiot but me, but listen, I'm, I just think we all feel that way. Like, we all think we're the ones, we know how we want things to be, we are the hero of our own story. You know, like, we, in, in our story, we're the hero, we're the top, we're the best, we're the most important. But remember this, you are not entitled to your anger as somebody else. You're just not entitled to it. You're just not allowed to, I mean, it's not a right that you have to be holding on to that anger. So we decided that we would get rid of anger, to drop it like it's hot. Sing the song if you have to, to drop it like it's hot. I think Christians should be known as the least offendable people on the planet. I really do. That's what I believe. It's hard, but it's, I believe what God is asking us to do. Uh, then last week we talked about that we live in a broken society, right? 
we always say, or I did anyway, and maybe you say something different, but I used to always say, I can't believe it. I can't believe they would act this way. I can't believe that that would happen. I can't believe that the politician would lie to me. I can't believe, right? We say, I can't believe. If we would adjust our expectations and realize that we live in a broken society, we live in a broken world, then maybe we would quit saying, I can't believe about everything and turn the script a little bit and understand that if everybody's coming from a broken place, then maybe we can uh, more easily recognize when something beautiful happens when you do something for somebody that was unexpected, when somebody does something for you that was unexpected, maybe those are the things that we can rejoice in and be excited about. We also remember that nobody is a mortal threat to the kingdom. Nobody can do the kingdom of God in. There's nobody that has the power to kill the kingdom of God. Now, we walk around acting like they might, like it's our job, especially as people who believe in Jesus, to do our best to protect his kingdom. But he doesn't need that. He does not need us to protect his kingdom. There's not a mortal threat. So today, I'm going to talk about something a little bit different. Same idea. Uh, we're going to expand on that a little bit. All right, I titled this first one Dumpster Diver, and you'll understand uh, what I mean in a minute. Have you heard the term scandal of grace before? Have you heard that term, the scandal of grace? Uh, by the way, as I go through this, if you want to get the message notes, go to the church's app, and uh, you can have the notes to the message there today. But a scandal of grace. Grace is God's undeserved love and favor on us. That's what grace is. So sometimes grace seems scandalous. Grace seems scandalous. And, and here's what I mean. Um, there was a pastor, true story. This pastor became addicted to pornographic magazines. And so one day he got disgusted with himself and he was just had had enough and he was done with it. So he took his magazines, his wife was out of town, and he went and put them all in the dumpster. Went back inside, felt real good about himself. I got rid of all the magazines and, and that's it. Well, sometime later, and perhaps maybe you can relate to this, the trash hadn't come yet. His wife wasn't home yet. And a little while later, sometime later, he began to feel a little regret. Like, man, maybe I was so too hasty. I don't know. I may, I, so he went back out there and he was going to get his magazines back. He leaned over the dumpster to get his magazines back. And when he did, he fell in the dumpster. True story. And he got stuck in the dumpster. He couldn't get back out. And that's where his wife found him, in the bottom of a dumpster with all of his pornographic magazines. You might be able to relate to something like that. When we've been caught in something, when we've been busted, when we've been humiliated, when we've been crushed, but then we've been forgiven. And that's what happened to this pastor. That's all of us. Have you ever thought about that? We are all people who have been forgiven. And, and we found ourselves before we were forgiven, though, at the bottom of the dumpster. Caught, humiliated, crushed. What if our church was nothing but a church of dumpster divers? What I mean is, 
What if we were people who all knew that we had been caught, that lies had been exposed, that we were not nearly as good as we thought we were, but we had been redeemed? What if we were a church of people like that who understood what it meant to be forgiven? Think about, and I know if you haven't been to an AA meeting, then you know about an AA meeting. Think about an AA meeting. Nobody walks into that meeting and says, ha, I caught you, right? You're all busted. No, because people who go to AA, they start out by saying, I have a problem. This is my issue. They know that they have a problem. They know that they're busted. They know. For some reason in the church, we all try to pretend like we don't have a problem. Like we don't have an issue. Like everybody does but us. And that's not the truth. Because we are all the kind that have been redeemed from having fallen. And you know, there's a lot of stress that gets released, uh, relieved and released do you like how I combine those two words? Relieved. There's a lot of stress that gets released when we've been found out, isn't there? The truth really does have a way of setting us free. Have you ever found that to be true? Like, you know, and there's this thing, and it's hanging over your head, and then all of a sudden, you, something happens, or the, it gets too much for you. Somebody finds out, or you confess. It's just like all of the stress goes away. Maybe there's a different set of issues to deal with now, but that stress from holding that is gone. Maybe, and here's the point, if we can find that we are that kind of a person, one who was a dumpster diver but has been forgiven and redeemed, maybe we'll find that we're not entitled to our anger. <coughs> maybe we'll find that we don't have to get angry every time something happens. Maybe we'll find that because we've been let off the hook, we're that much more able to forgive. Let's say this. Let's say you've been accused of some capital crime, something that's bad. And then at the end of it, you get released from that. You get redeemed from whatever it is. You get forgiven for this capital crime. I mean, you're gonna go and live your life in, a, in like a freer way, like, oh, this weight has gone off of me. I don't have to hold this burden anymore. You might even let, so, let somebody cut you off in traffic because you're feeling good. I know some of you have experienced that. You're feeling good. Things are good. You're, you're living in the reality of the forgiveness that you've been extended. I suspect that our sense of entitlement to anger is directly proportional to our perception of our own innocence. Does that make sense? We feel entitled to anger. Our sense of that entitlement is directly proportional to our perception of innocence. In other words, the more we've been forgiven, the more likely we are to let go of things. The more we feel released from the things that have held on to us, the more likely we are to treat people in a better and kinder way. Remember, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we've been exposed publicly for what we are. 
We, we just have been. The depths of our brokenness, the extent of our betrayal, our ugliness is made public, but then it's forgiven by Jesus Christ. You know, I don't know if you guys feel the same sense of release that I do when I think about what Jesus has forgiven me of. And I don't share details of my story because I'm embarrassed, but the depth of despair that I found myself in once upon a time, when I begin to feel like I'm too good <laughs> or too important or I go back and I remember that time and then realize that Jesus has set me free from that. I've been redeemed of that. So why wouldn't I offer the same forgiveness that I've been extended? But for some reason we get forgiven and then we get self-righteous. God help us to not be a self-righteous people. Gratitude and anger simply cannot exist together. Think about it. Have you ever been angry and then something good happens and you feel a sense of gratitude, happiness, excitement? Like the, the two don't go together. One wipes out the other. Teresa was very happy about receiving a gift. <laughs> that was quickly wiped out when she realized it was a carpet steam cleaner. <laughs> right? It's that kind of a thing. All right, but don't take my word for it. Romans chapter two, verses one through three. If you think you can judge others, you're wrong. When you judge them, you're really judging yourself guilty because you do the same things they do. God judges those who do wrong things and we know that his judging is right. You judge those who do wrong, but you do wrong yourselves. Do you think you will be able to escape the judgment of God? In other words, they're guilty, we're guilty. It's not me. You, do, you judge those who do wrong, but you do wrong yourselves. Do you think you'll be able to escape the judgment of God? We're just as guilty as they are. Jesus levels the playing field so nobody can pretend that they're the most righteous. That's what Jesus did. And, and then, <coughs> as was his habit, Jesus ups the ante. I'll paraphrase, he says, you're worse than they are. I'm worse than they are. What, how does he say that? He says, so you haven't murdered anybody? You remember this? Paraphrasing again. You haven't murdered anybody? Well, I'll tell you, if you even hate somebody, you might as well murder them. If you even hate somebody. So he says, I I'm gonna take your murder and I'm gonna raise it, or lower it, depending on your perspective, to hate just by hating somebody. Remember, what is it, the, is it the King James that says Raka? I remember, anybody who says to their brother, Raka, I hate you from here. Oh, make no mistake, we are busted at the bottom of a dumpster. 
We have to be careful. You remember the story in Matthew chapter 18 of the unmerciful servant? Do y'all remember that? The unmerciful servant. He, he owed, just say, a million dollars. It was this large sum of money to the king. And so he goes and, and the king says, in, uh, imprison his family, his wife and his kids. And again, go read Matthew 18. This is me paraphrasing, okay? So I'm not quoting scripture. Uh, he says, imprison everybody until they can pay the debt off. Well, the servant, he begs, no, please don't. Just give me, I'll do it. I'll be able to pay you. Give me some leniency. Have mercy on me. So the king says, okay, I'll give you mercy. A little while later, the servant saw somebody who owed him money. And he said, pay me what you owe me. A little bit of money. $1,000 versus his million. Pay me what you owe me. And the guy says, I don't have the money. <laughs> Gets him thrown in jail until he can pay. The unmerciful servant. This is Jesus telling the story. So that makes the king very angry. And the king throws him to be tortured until he can pay the money back. In other words, we need to understand that we have been forgiven of so, so, so much. And we need to see others, like Jesus would see them, with compassion, with mercy, and not be so easily offended by them. I think something we can learn from the story is that we're not just as guilty as they are. We're worse. The problem is, is we don't see ourselves as worse, but remember what we've been forgiven of. If I get to determine whether or not my anger is righteous, then I'm in trouble. We're in trouble. If I get to determine what it is, we say, trust ourselves. Uh, sounds reasonable, right? My anger is righteous anger. I'm righteous. Have you heard that? How about these? Here's some scriptures here. This is Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? <laughs> or what about Proverbs 14? There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. Another one's Proverbs chapter three. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. We struggle with trusting God to dish out justice. We're afraid he won't, so we feel like it's our duty to do it. And if you haven't seen that, my kids, this manifests itself in my kids. There's a, this, this deep desire to see justice done, a deep desire. And so we are, my wife and I, trying to get them always to have grace for each other. Just, you know, back off a little bit. Let's do, you know, don't tattle on each other. Don't. Don't try to hurt each other. You know, let, we'll handle the justice. But then you hear in the bedroom a little while later, somebody's crying. <laughs> What happened? Well, I didn't think you were going to deal justice, so I'm dealing my own justice. <laughs> Please do not be dealing justice because I understand the offense. You, am I making sense? The problem is we are so good at deceiving ourselves that we can't trust if what we think is righteous is really righteous. We deceive ourselves. We think that we're righteous. We think we can trust ourselves. But you read this and it says there's a way that seems right, but in its way end, it leads to death. It, death. it tells us to trust in the Lord. Trust Him. Maybe when you get home, you can try something that could help. Look in the mirror. 
Think about somebody you don't like and say, that person I'm angry with, I'm worse. And then, here, here, this is free. This isn't even. How will we, if we want to reach people for Jesus, how are we going to reach them if we're constantly offended at what they do? They're going to look at us and think, well, there's no difference between you and me. We're the same. You are offended. I'm offended. We're all offended. But if we can learn to refuse to be offended, then people will see something different in us. And it's not just saying we won't be offended for the sake of not being offended. We're commanded not to. All right, here's the second point. The first one was long, wasn't it? All right, give me time. Hold on, moms. I know some of you, including us, probably have plans for lunch or brunch or something. But we'll get there. Second one. Uh, the kingdom of God isn't on defense. Okay. I told a, a story one time about this idea. I don't know if you guys remember. The king, and, and we're going to read the scripture in a minute. But the kingdom of hell cannot prevail against, uh, against it. Against, there's, there's a, it's like there's a gate we imagine. And that gate the way we act, that gate is, is attacking. And we feel like it's our job to, but, but that's not true. Let me tell you a story I read in Huffington Post. A Lecrae, anybody know Lecrae? Some of you know who Lecrae is. Uh, he's uh, recent, I say recent, he's getting a little older now in the Christian rap scene, but he's a, he's a Christian rap artist. And he's had his own struggles, so I'm not taking what he says for gospel. But I do want to talk about a, an article that was written about him where he had some comments. So uh, this is what he said. Christians have no idea how to deal with art. They say, hey, Lecrae, you can't do that. That's bad. That's secular. You can't touch that. Hey, Lecrae, your engineer is not a Christian. He can't mix your stuff. He's going to get sinner cooties on it. <laughs> this is real, he said. I wish I was making it up. The author of that article went on to explain that the mainstream media, this is how he explained it, evangelicals adopted an isolationist mindset for much of the 20th century. Non-Christians, the thinking went, carried sin like a virus. And the point of following Jesus was to remain as pure as possible. So Christians established their own communities, educational institutions, and music festivals separate from the rest of the world. There's something to be said about God's call to righteousness. Don't don't misunderstand that. He has called us to live a righteous life, but he has not called us to avoid people who sin. We have to live a righteous life, and with the help of the Holy Spirit living in us, then we can live a life full of the Spirit that as we grow in faith and we give ourself to him, then he replaces our desire with his desire. Because they merge. We want what he wants. And we learn to live a life of righteousness. So that's true. But we have taken that, this is what the article's referencing, and been like, well, we need to be righteous. So the way we're righteous is by establishing and setting up a whole separate kingdom for ourselves. But that's not how Jesus did it. 
I used to think that not only it was a good thing, but it was my duty to be offended at the sin of others. Somehow, I took the example of Jesus and thought that to mean it's my job to be offended when somebody sins. But it's not my job. It's my job to love. I mean, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you've been through the exact same thing. How is it that we feel like it's our job to protect the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God does not need our protection. Nobody is going to tear his kingdom down. Jesus set it up. God established this kingdom and it can't be destroyed by me. Matthew 16, 18, I tell you, you are Peter. On this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And, and this is what I was referencing earlier. We take this idea that the gates of hell somehow in, in the English language, it doesn't get translated quite right. The gates of hell, gate, a gate cannot advance, right? We understand that. A gate cannot be on offense. So the gates of hell are the defense of hell, we are on offense. We are to be invading the gates of hell. A different way to say it might be that Jesus is sending his followers to love others even through and into the gates of hell. Anywhere that we can love people. That's what he's called us to. Now listen, let me say that if, if somebody's weak in a particular area, then don't say God has called me to invade the gates of hell in this particular area because you don't want to stumble. Be careful. Set for yourself uh, guides. Have a mentor in your life. Have somebody that you're accountable to. But at the same time, he has called us to be the ones extending his love and the way the scripture's written, even into the gates of hell. They cannot stop us meaning we can love somebody who's living in sin. It's not an invitation to participate, don't get me wrong, but it's our duty to love. Take Jesus as your example because Jesus loved everybody. He got in trouble so many times for going to the sinner's houses. You remember that? Several times he went to the sinner's house. How could you go to the sinner's house? Oh, he's eating with the sinners. Oh, he's associating with the sinners. He never participated with them. He never did what they did, but he loved them. And he reached them. Somehow we've taken this principle and feel like to be a good, good Christian, we have to avoid others. <laughs> but to introduce them to a God who is already reaching towards them right where they are is what he has called us to do. Uh, something I read in the book, I thought it was interesting. Uh, Hansen says, I happen to be a pro-life, limited government Jesus follower. So, you're an atheist and a socialist who's pro-choice and doesn't like Jesus? Huh, let's talk about that. We have this idea that if somebody doesn't believe like or think like us, that we have to avoid them. The kingdom of God is about reaching people for Jesus. And the way we reach people is loving them. They're never going to understand love, not really, unless they see the love of God in action. And they're gonna see the love of God in action in our lives. And when you wanna talk about advancing his kingdom, that's how his kingdom gets advanced, by you. We shouldn't pretend the difference isn't there. 
Just realize that God's going to work on them in his time. Our job is not to change people's lives. Our job is to love them. And somebody asked me, um, so when, Cal, when do you get to speak to them about the sin in their lives? It's a tough question, man. I'm waiting on God to open that door. And when God opens that door, when they allow me to speak to them, because you, you understand that if you just approach somebody who you know is living a life that is contrary to God's design, if you just approach them and you say, hey, you're sinning, <laughs> how's that gonna do? It's not gonna do good at all. You're not gonna reach them. So the thing we do is we love them. And at some point as they learn to trust you and me, they're going to give you permission, not verbally maybe, but they're gonna to begin to trust you because they know that, oh, you do love me. And when that door opens, then we, we say, hey, this is the thing. And sometimes I've had people say, so I'm living this way or I'm doing this. What do you think about that? I think what I think is probably not nearly as important as what the scripture says. Now here's what I know. Here's what God says about such and such. And that's where lives get changed. All right. I want to read this uh, small portion of the book here. This is the last one. The fun of burning anger. The fun of burning anger. <laughs> some of you are like, is it fun? Well, it seems like for some people. All right. So overall, how does Scripture, which is well acquainted with injustice, describe anger? Think about this. Well, anger is described as fierce and cruel in Genesis 49.7. It's burning in Exodus 11.8. In the same book, it's also described as a blazing fury. And if you're not careful, it can blaze against you. In Leviticus chapter 26, anger is something given full vent and equated with hostility. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, it is associated with the words burn and destroy. In 1 Samuel 20, we see an anger that boils with rage. Anger will not be quenched, according to 2 Kings twenty-two seventeen. 17. In 2 Samuel 6, it bursts out. In Job 4, it blasts. And in Job 16, God himself, in anger, tears and pierces. Anger is terrifying and fierce in Psalm 25. It's burning and consuming in Psalm 69, 24. Then smoldering intensely in Psalm 74. In Isaiah 9, 12, it's associated with the fist poised to strike. In chapter 30, it's demonstrated with flames, cloudbursts, thunderstorms, and hailstones. In Isaiah 63.3, it, it tramples. It doesn't exactly chill out in Lamentations. The words engulfed and slaughtered are used in chapter 3. I'm not cherry-picking. There just aren't any references to, to anger in the Bible as something wonderful. And yet we're now told it's a gift for our use when we feel it's reasonable. We're also told we should be aroused to anger when we see one of God's commands being broken. Really? Then we're going to be busy. Really, really busy. We're also going to be really, really angry all the time. And that's just at ourselves, for starters. Maybe I'm supposed to be angry that often. And maybe it really is a gift. Maybe it'll make my life more joyful and peaceful. So long as I don't also mind the burning, blazing, cloud bursting, striking, thundering, hailing, tearing, piercing, trampling, slaughtering, boiling, and the occasional blasting. If this is, in fact, what we're supposed to do, experience righteous anger whenever we're made aware of one of God's commands being broken, we'll be precisely what the world doesn't need and largely believes we already are, a bunch of uptight, seething hypocrites. 
The Bible directs us to get rid of anger in Ephesians chapter four and Colossians chapter three. But the idea of righteous anger turns that directive on its head. Maybe we can actually pat ourselves on the back for being offended and embracing anger. And all that boiling, piercing, corrosive power becomes part of our lives and destroys us. Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 says to get rid of anger. There's just not anything good in the Bible that talks about being angry. You guys remember the story of the adulterous woman? You guys remember that? It's one of the great stories in the Bible. They find the woman who was committing adultery. They actually caught her in the act. There's a lot of things going on around that as far as what she set up, how did they know, things like that. So they caught this woman in adultery, drug her out into the street naked, it says in the scripture, and they're all ready because of her sin to stone her to death, which is what the law required of their time. And Jesus is there. Jesus, what should we do with this woman? Jesus, understanding people, he says, I guess whoever doesn't have sin, let them throw the first stone. <laughs> he says, you don't have to do this because you're all just as guilty as she is. If you aren't guilty, then throw. I guess here's where we're going. We don't have to assess people any longer. We don't have to hold on to our anger at them. We can't even know what they're angry about anyway. We don't know their reason for being angry. What a sweet, sweet release to simply trust in Jesus and not hold the anger. Reminds me of the song that we sang earlier, Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus. We sing about it, but are we really trusting him? When we hold a fence about somebody else or towards them, then I don't think we are. I think we're not trusting Jesus. The kingdom of God is just so shockingly opposite about the way the world operates. It's just entirely different. It's, it's not the same at all. If you want to lead, you have to follow. And if you want to be on top, you're really at the bottom. And if you want people to respect you, then you have to serve them. Like it's just, it's just opposite. If you want somebody to, uh, to experience God, then you can't be offended at them. You have to love them. It's just different. We run into problems when we take our culture the way we understand it and we place that into our life with Jesus. Listen, we're all equal, all of us. Pastors and prostitutes and lawyers and roughnecks. We're all the same. Nobody is better than anybody. In fact, when we believe that Jesus has saved us, we find that we begin to feel worse than they are. So here's the thing, and this is awesome. The whole point of today is Jesus is offering us peace. And he's saying to us this morning, can you just let go of your anger? You don't have to hold it anymore. You don't have to be mad. You don't have to hold on to that. Let it go. Just let it go. Just give it to me, Jesus says, and trust me and know that I'm gonna take care of it. 
What a sweet release to not have to hold on to that rock anymore, ready to stone the next person that we see committing some kind of sin. Just let it go. Let Jesus handle it. Our job is just to love people. We want to love them. And we do want to teach. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we absolve ourselves from all of that. But it all starts. The door is open when they know our love. And when that door opens, then we get the chance to show them what a righteous life is like, to teach them who Jesus is, to teach them how the Holy Spirit can affect them, to help people grow in a relationship with Christ. That's the, where discipling comes in. God has set this up perfectly. But we're not going to be able to do any of it if we're holding on to those rocks. So this morning, if you guys would, let's stand. I'm going to pray here. We're going to sing a song. And I just want you to know this morning is the perfect chance for you to let go of your rock. If you're holding on to an anger this morning, then just let it go. Give it to God. Let him have it. Jesus, this morning we are grateful that you are with us today. I, I, I don't know how you are talking to the people here this morning. Holy Spirit, I don't know how you're interacting with us today. But I am asking that you would help us to let go of our anger. I don't want to make a big scene and call everybody to kneel and to come forward and all that. But if you're here today, you know if you're holding on to that. Will you let the Holy Spirit take that away from you? I think you probably have to ask, though. I don't think he just takes it. Ask him, Holy Spirit, God, would you take this anger from me? Take, take my offendableness away. Help me to not be so offended at every little thing. Help me to trust you, Jesus. I want to give everything to you this morning. We love you today, God. We're grateful for what you do in our lives. Now we're asking you to take these things from us. And we have to, with open hand, let go. So that's what we're doing today. We're letting go and letting you have it. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing here just kind of a closing song of worship. Let them work in your heart, your spirit. And I want to remind you, all the, all the ladies here on your way out, don't forget to the moms stop by and get your, your gift. But listen, I love you guys. We're going to keep this up next week. So.